Warning, this podcast contains adult language and graphic content not intended for younger or more sensitive listeners. You have been warned. Welcome back to the pit of our deepest, darkest dreams and living nightmares, this spooky show. Let us sing you back to sleep, lovelies. There's nothing to be afraid of. Yet. (laughs) 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 We are your sirens of nocturnal terror, the ghoul babes. It's Scorpio season, and I'm Lauren. I would like if I may, to take you on a strange journey. I'm Vivian. Ooh. And I miss my hands. I'm Jade. What happened to your hands? What happened? I don't know. I just miss them. (laughs) So they're fine. You just miss them. (laughs) I miss you, hands. I haven't asked. I don't know. I don't like to presume things. (laughs) And back with us today, in uh, what appears to be a terrible habit of surviving. Very terrible. <sighs> our editor and perennial failed sacrifice, Quincy. Hi, guys. They forgot See. the shovels, didn't they? Yep. Did, did they bring the towel at least? God damn it. No. God damn they it. They forgot the Fucking crepe interns. murder towel. <sighs> so how did you get back here? Uber. We're going to get a bill for this. Yeah, I'm claiming it as a business expense. God damn it. Great. That means that we're going to need to get some money to pay off Uber. Please subscribe to our Patreon. We we need it. We need it to pay Uber. (laughs) We also need to put an Indeed out for more more invisible interns. Please. And if you know anybody who, you know, might be down on their luck, might not be very good at anything else, you know, but maybe some creepy shit, yeah. send them our way. I mean, these ones had an unfortunate accident on the way back to town, so. These ones technically weren't even good at the creepy shit, so send us better. Be better. Be better. This week, we are once again waltzing through the vaults of true crime cases, and while there is no denying that serial killers hold a mass appeal amongst true crime aficionados... There is a certain demographic of these that seem wholly overlooked by mass media, streaming service specials, and docuseries. The female serial killer! That was very dramatic. (laughs) Yes, I tried to do everything dramatically. (laughs) Now, it is true that there are less female serial murderers than their male counterparts. 85% of serial killers are male, while only 15% are female. But female serial killers outnumber their one-time wham-bam-thank-you-ma'am killers by at least 5%. If I had a nickel. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about it. So when it comes to murder, it seems that women can compete with any man. Damn Skippy. As recently as 1998, which... Uh, that, that That's a grown child right there. Yeah, uh, people born in 1998 are grown children. Like, they, they can drink now. Nope. Stop it. They're still fetuses. They're still babies. <laughs> I love how y'all are coming to terms with this now. <laughs> Just wait yeah. t- wait until it get, you get older. 
I told you, listeners, you just, <laughs> this is a spooky show. You just wait. You, you just fucking wait. That sounds so threatening. What are you going to do to us? <laughs> Please don't. Welcome to the overside of the hill, bitches. <laughs> no! I want to like, go back. I want to go back. I like it better over here. I think I'm going to get my crayons and my finger puppets and just sit for a bit. Don't they say the grass is greener? Well, it's a lie, because the grass on this side of over the hill is all fucking dead. <laughs> Just like we will be. Just yep. like we will be eventually, dear listeners. Just like our spirits. <laughs> and now our spirits, yeah. <laughs> Old moon. So what happened in 1998? Uh, Roy Hazelwood of the FBI was quoted at a conference saying, quote, there are no female serial killers. Wrong. Bullshit. Wrong. Wrong. <laughs> wrong. <laughs> Did I mention wrong? Wrong. wrong. And even when these lethal ladies are identified, more often than not, they are portrayed as victims of circumstances or under the thrall of an evil male counterpart. So why is this? Hmm. Perhaps it's these misconceptions about females as serial murderers that allow them to have killing careers much longer than their male counterparts. 8 to 11 years for females compared to about 2 for men, with an average of 9 victims. Sounds like these men just don't measure up, do they? No. But perhaps it's also due to their methods of killing and selecting victims that allows them to slide so deceptively under the radar. A 2011 study showed that these women are less likely to have a past criminal history. They also tend to kill those closest to them, both emotionally and physically. (laughs) And employ much quieter methods of death, such as poisoning, drugs, and smothering. The myth of the female serial killer was shattered in 1991 with the arrest of Eileen Warnos. She was accused of the murder of seven men in Florida between November 1989 and November 1990. Warnos was the first modern female serial killer to garner the same kind of media attention as her male counterparts like Bundy, Ramirez, and Dahmer. Well, here at this spooky show, we're all about continuing to shatter those glass ceilings. Shatter them. Shatter them into pieces. (laughs) (laughs) Pop (laughs) so now to prove that women can be every bit as deadly as men the ghoul babes will present you with six different lethal ladies who are accused of being serial murderers and that doesn't mean they eat a lot of cereal i can't say which brands because no one's paid us yet but cereal i like cereal i like like cereal cereal. (laughs) so I drew the short straw from the cauldron of doom, and we'll be ta- talking about our first lethal lady, or should I say our fetal fetus? <laughs> Please, our fetal fetus! Fetal fetus! Fiddle faddle! Fuck Fuck everything. That's another thing that we need to put on merch. (laughs) Fetal fetus. Sounds like a metal band. God damn it, fuck my joke. Fatal Um, fetus. (laughs) We can start that over and leave this whole thing in. We're human. Well, barely, but... I'm not. Barely. Some of us can barely be considered human, but (laughs) things happen. Anyway, short straw, talking about our first lethal lady, fatal fetus, treacherous toddler, murderous moppet. I could keep going, but obviously I can't speak. And we get the point. (laughs) I think we get it. Anyway, yes. 
Our first story is about a child killer, an adjective that both describes the killer and her victims. But before we delve into the story of Mary Flora Bell, let's just set the scene first. Close your eyes. Imagine yourself back in 1968, living in a small community outside of London, England. It's nice, sunless day, and let's be real, it's probably going to rain off and on all day. Ah, I'm there. (laughs) You're enjoying this typical London day when suddenly the body of a four-year-old boy is discovered in a boarded-up condemned house. Wiggity-wiggity what? Freeze frame, record scratch. (laughs) Probably wondering how I got here. (laughs) Little Martin Brown was that boy. He was found lifeless and with spit and blood trickling down his cheek. Surely this would have raised all the red flags. Surely London police would sound all the alarms. No one would rest until the murderer was found, right? Wrong. Wrong. Wrong? Wrong. Since there were no obvious signs of violence, you know, because (laughs) a dead toddler in an abandoned, condemned house is clearly normal. I guess in London. I guess at this time in London, bad neighborhood, (laughs) Jesus. Right. (laughs) The police believed his death to be accidental. Grade A police work to be sure. For sure. It wasn't until another young boy... Three-year-old Brian Howe was found strangled in an industrial area where local children were apt to play. Did they finally think something sinister was afoot? (laughs) Something might be going on here. What's going on around here? (laughs) Can't put my finger on it. (laughs) They needed violence, and violence they got. Brian Howe was found with with puncture marks on his thigh and partially mutilated genitals, with clumps of his hair cut off. In addition to these gruesome details, Brian was also found to have the letter M scratched into his skin with a razor blade. That is ballsy. Like Zorro? Kind of. (laughs) God. Like Zorro, but more child killing. Holy shit. Like Zorro, but not at all. (laughs) Like Zorro, except nothing like Zorro. (laughs) Yes, Maria. (laughs) That's the M's for. (laughs) I mean, her name was Barry. Yeah. Ooh, spoiler. Now, with the small community of Scottswood in panic, the police had to actually do their job. Imagine that. Gasp. (laughs) They began by questioning all of the children in the area. During their interviews, two young girls stood out to them, Norma Bell, age 13, and Mary Bell, age 11. No actual relation between the two. What? Yeah. Imagine that. What are the odds? (laughs) Right? I mean, it is London. I'm sure Belle is probably a common Yeah, but like, what are the odds of like two girls with the same, like around the same age with the same last name? In the same area, yeah. In the same area, but they're not related. Right. And the names sound like, you know, sibling names. They do. Norma Norma and and Barry. Barry? And Barry, apparently. (laughs) Norma and Mary. Norma, the detective noted, seemed to be excited by the murder, smiling throughout the questioning. Mary, on the other hand, was quite evasive. At one point, she singled out an eight-year-old boy who lived in the community, claiming that she saw him with Brian the day he was murdered and that she saw the boy hit Brian. She also claimed to have seen him playing with a pair of scissors. Clever girl. However, the accused boy was at the airport at the time of the murder, and Mary had instead implicated herself in the crime by mentioning the scissors. That detail was never released to the public. So the opposite of clever. Yeah. Could you imagine, though, if she had just been a little older? Because, like, for her age, that's pretty, pretty smart. Yeah, I just... She's trying, um, for sure, to to throw off suspicions. Mm -hmm. 
On the day of Brian's funeral, Mary was seen by a detective standing outside of the Howe residence, smiling and laughing as she watched the coffin come out, rubbing her hands together as she did. Like, okay. she, like an evil raccoon. Yeah. <laughs> okay, not oh. that smart. <laughs> shit goblin. Mm-hmm. Like a cackling little shit goblin. <laughs> Which, can I just say, as we just all kind of pointed out, that is the most B-rate Hollywood movie villain thing she could have done. Absolutely. (laughs) Way to to duck under the suspicion radar. Stand outside the house, rub your hands together, and cackle. Right? If you had, like, a little handlebar mustache, you would have been twirling it. Like, (laughs) yeah. Well, you see. Yeah. Norma was also at the funeral, and she decided to talk to the police about what she knew of the murder. Not sure why she had a change of heart, but, you know. Whatever. She claimed that Mary had told her that she had killed Brian and that Mary brought her to the house afterwards to show her the body. She said Mary described to Norma how she had strangled Brian and how she had enjoyed it. Of course, Mary denied these allegations, refusing to talk aside from pointing the finger back at Norma. (laughs) Right. She couldn't have just been like, yeah, yeah, everything that Norma said was true. I did it. Twas I. Twas me. But what like a certain, like you could have at least pointed the finger at somebody else. Like, I guess. But she already tried that, and it didn't work. Mm-hmm. Why better next Once time? Once bitten, twice shy, yeah. I guess. Both girls were arrested and charged with the murder of Brian Howe. But what about Dear Martin Brown? Well, you see. <laughs> no one cared about him. Leading up to and during the trial, new evidence was uncovered. Two days after Martin Brown's body was found, a local nursery school was broken into and vandalized. In addition to supplies being thrown about, four notes were found at the scene. One which read, quote, we did murder Martin Brown. And another that said, quote, I murder so that I may come back. Surely, surely, this would open a murder investigation into Martin Brown's death, right? Right? Nope. No. Jeez. <laughs> the police still assumed that Martin's death was an, ac- was an accident and thought that the notes were a sick joke. Which... I guess it kind of was, in a way, because Mary later admitted to writing them for a, quote, giggle. Jeez. People really either, A, did not give a shit about their jobs, or B, really hated that kid. Like, he rode around on his bike throwing rocks through people's windows or some shit. Like, he's four. Toddlers are assholes. But doesn't mean, like, they deserve to be killed. Absolutely not. It also came out during the trial that the other children had heard Mary screaming, I am a murderer. That's where I killed. Goodness. (laughs) Look at me, everybody, banging pots and pans together. I am so great. I I killed this boy. I killed this boy. (laughs) While she was pointing to the house where Brian's body was found, Mary was apparently not shy about her murders or murderous inclinations. She'd even told her guards at one point that she liked, quote, hurting little things that can't fight back. Clearly. (laughs) I don't even have words. Yeah. This girl's eight. Yeah. Jeez. Clearly, this girl was deeply troubled, read psychopathic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What had happened to this young girl to make her so psychotic and devoid of emotion? Maybe she was born with it. Maybe it was her shitty ass mom. When she was born, Mary's mother, Betty's response was, quote, get that thing away from me. I mean, you did it. Like, it's your fault. <laughs> going going right in the baby book. <laughs> right underneath that picture. Right underneath the little feet prints. Get, the, get hair, that the thing hair away ribbon, from me. And then 
get this thing out of here or so help me. <laughs> <laughs> Written in really pretty, like, fancy like handwriting. Just get that thing away from me. Oh. She would not hesitate to drop Mary off with relatives whenever she could and had even once tried to just give Mary away to a woman who had been denied an adoption. Betty's sister had followed them and managed to get Mary back. Wow. Yeah. It's no wonder that at two years old, Mary started to become cold and detached. I can imagine why. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, your mom tried to give you away to a woman. Give you away to a stranger. Your aunt is the only reason that you came back. We've read about that before, and uh, we're going to read about that later, too. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> As a toddler, she'd lash out at her family and hit them. Then, in kindergarten, she choked a classmate. Psychologically, it makes sense that this anger and need for control developed early in Mary. Her family also brought several other stories to light, one being that Mary watched her five-year-old friend get hit and killed by a bus. It was a rough neighborhood. A yeah. bus. And I bet you anything, nobody cared about that kid either. Probably, it was an accident. Oh, that was an accident, huh? <laughs> Another, that Betty, Mary's mother was a prostitute and had frequently given Mary intentional drug overdoses in order to get attention via Munchausen by proxy. Among allegations of Mary being prostitute out to her mother's clients, it was also said that Betty had once lied to different family members that Mary had been run over by a truck and died. That must have made the holidays pretty awkward, huh? Yeah, like, sorry we didn't get you a gift. Your mother said your that mom, you died. Your mom said you were flattened by a truck and were dead. <laughs> so that's your present, I guess? Uh, Merry Christmas, you're alive? You're alive. Yay. You get the gift of life. And I mean, that's a good way to also feel neglected even more so. Right? Like, your mom's Everyone telling everybody you're presents. dead. Oh, I was going with the presents angle. <laughs> Everyone else got presents. And I didn't, because I'm alive. Because I'm alive, and I should be grateful. I wish I had been killed by a truck. Me. As a child. <laughs> yeah, same. I wish I... I hope I do die next. <laughs> Mary and Norma were both charged with two counts of manslaughter, which I think is absolutely ridiculous. Just saying. JS. Yeah. During the trial, they both testified and implicated each other, but still seemed to have a strange bond between them. One thing that probably helped Mary's case were the court-appointed psychologists who testified that Mary had symptoms of psychopathy. Gee, you don't say. Gee, thanks a lot, Sherlock. (laughs) And therefore was neither coherent nor responsible for her actions. You know, I think this child that murdered might be psychotic. (laughs) What's what's that you don't say? (laughs) Uh, It's just a hunch. Something's wrong up in the noggin. (laughs) (laughs) A little brain's broken. What? (laughs) On December 17th, 1968, Norma was acquitted of all of her charges. Mary, on the other hand, was convicted of manslaughter due to diminished responsibility. She was supposed to be detained at, quote, Her Majesty's pleasure, basically saying that she was going to be in prison for however long they wanted, which apparently was nine years. Nope, it wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) Spoiler alert, nope. (laughs) After serving nine years, Mary escaped from prison but was quickly caught. Somehow, that didn't add much, if any, time to her sentence, seeing as she was released three years later in 1980. She still has her whole life ahead of her. Yeah. She was 23 at this point and was granted anonymity to start a new life under a new name. Four years later, Mary gave birth to a daughter, 
and there was much concern over whether or not Mary should be allowed to keep her child, considering her past. Another no yeah. shit. <laughs> right? You killed children. Should you be allowed to have child? Mm-hmm. Why'd you go Russian? Yeah, that was, that was weird. <laughs> it's the only accent I can do. <laughs> you, you have beet? Do you have beet? You trade child for beet. You have potato? <laughs> I prefer beet. <laughs> okay. Half beet, one potato. Oh, half beet. Nobody oh. wants potato. I keep telling you. Potato is not thing. Is beet is potato. You have pick. Sergey is not thing. Sergey. What is Sergey? What is wrong? You have beet. You have potato. Beet good. Potato good. Two things good. What's wrong? <laughs> Two separate things. You, what? You have Reese's, but you don't have beet tato. <laughs> Two great things go good together. <laughs> I'm losing the accent. <laughs> Reese's people won't have beet tato. <sighs> oh Ron, did you get that? We're funny. Did you get that? Cut at least that last part out. Did you do... Though, if we're talking serial killers, and we are, we are. We little are. girls don't seem to fit her M.O., so I'm sure her daughter would have been fine. In the end, she was allowed to keep and raise her daughter after local authorities released Mary's local and actual identity. <laughs> Good job, guys. Good job. The community was pissed. Like, it was just talk around the water cooler, like, oh, yeah, you know that new chick? Like, yeah, she used to murder little kids. Right. What? What? <laughs> Mary's daughter had... No idea of her mother's <laughs> past. Well, she, as she wouldn't. Yeah. I mean, she could tell her, like, bedtime stories. Like, once upon a time, there was a little boy, and then there wasn't. The end. <laughs> the end. Now go to sleep. Now and go I to sleep. I carved my initial into his body. <laughs> Mary of <laughs> Mom, I don't love this story. I, please stop. <laughs> Mom, can you leave the light on? <laughs> can we go back to read Three Little Bears? I want to live with Grandma. Oh, no. No, you shouldn't, Dad. actually. <laughs> no. Uh, Mary eventually went to court and was granted lifelong anonymity for both her and her daughter. It's crazy for me to think that somewhere in Northumberland, there's a 62-year-old Mary Bell just living out the rest of her days in a walk-up, watching Wheel of Fortune and Let's Make a Deal on the telly. (laughs) On the telly. Just living her best life. Let's dial up the beebs. (laughs) It's like that mystery author, Anne Perry, who was convicted of participating in a murder at 15, and mm-hmm. she's now a widely yeah. read and published author. Right. Like, Mary Bell would just be a nice granny next door, and if I lived there, she would literally be the stranger beside me, available on audit- Audible. I'll go home. <laughs> you know where the door you is. You know where the door is. You know what you did. <laughs> A chilling story of a murderous child, and perhaps the oddest part, it seemed to be something she grew out of before disappearing into obscurity. But one who didn't fade into obscurity? The not-so-lovely English Rose, Rosemary West. Ugh. Ooh is right. I should actually start this off with another content warning. The story of Fred and Rosemary West is not for the faint-hearted. Their crimes are widely regarded as the most horrific known to the UK. Once again, you have been warned. 
Rosemary West was born Rosemary Letts on November 29th, 1953. That's a familiar date, isn't it? Holy moly, that's my birthday. (laughs) That date sounds familiar. Any idea why? (laughs) So to say that her mother had a difficult pregnancy with her would be a gross understatement. You know who also had a difficult pregnancy? Who else had a difficult pregnancy? Vivian's mom. (laughs) The similarities are just piling up, right? I split her uterus open. <laughs> she was asking for it. I did. She was asking for <laughs> it. I, w- I wasn't ready. I was a week late. I wasn't ready. <laughs> you came waltzing out with a face mask on. Like, I told you I wasn't ready. <laughs> I was not ready at all. Apparently, I just looked around at the nurses like, who the fuck are you people? <laughs> no, I'm coming back in. No, put I'm me going back in. No, reverse. I'm serious. <laughs> it's cold. Put me back in. No. I, I don't, don't. I've looked around at I the world. I don't love and this. <laughs> I don't love this. Put me back. I've taken a look at the world, and uh, I don't want to. Change it, and then bring me back. I mean, smart kid. I'm just saying. Should have gone back. I should have. I tried. <laughs> you tried hard. I did. You clawed your way up there. Like, Give me that. So her mother, Daisy, suffered from severe depression and was given electroconvulsion therapy as treatment during her pregnancy. Sounds lovely, right? Cooked Ugh. fetus. <laughs> this is how you roast a baby. You throw in, in the fetal. Just throw in some potatoes and you got yourself a fetal fetus. <laughs> and now we have a recipe for fetal fetus. <laughs> Add some potatoes, some squash, maybe. An maybe have her electrified baby. An electrified baby. She has to douche with chicken broth every 30 minutes. It's like basting. And time. <laughs> and time. Chicken broth and time. That's a douche. so believe it or not this treatment actually resulted in prenatal injury (gasps) i know amazing right who would have thought that shocking a pregnant mom would hurt the fetus who'd have thunk it so it was a science (laughs) science 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 would have told you that i'm pretty sure there's a couple of classes before science that you could take that would tell you that (laughs) also also true (laughs) So it was a contributing factor not only to Rosemary's poor performance in school, but also her random bouts of aggression. Pretty sure she gets a pass for that one. Like, you can't do math. It's because you were shocked in the head. It's because her brains were scrambled like eggs. <laughs> in the womb. Why Why do you always smell like thyme? <laughs> it's a lovely, it's a lovely scent, but it's a little chicken strong. <laughs> Close your mouth, dear. This flies around. <laughs> Her father was a paranoid schizophrenic who was prone to violent outbursts. Her mother attempted to move out and take Rosemary with her, which, good on mom, you know, being super, super depressed, needing electroshock therapy, and still wanting to get her daughter out of that situation. Too bad it didn't work out because Mm. the separation didn't last long. She moved back in with her father in her teenage years, around the same time she began a relationship with a much older man named Fred West. Big mistake. Read Child Molester. <laughs> yes. Her father disapproved of the relationship. However, like most teenage girls, Rosemary didn't care an ounce what her father had to say about her new boyfriend. <laughs> Daddy, I love him. <laughs> he's he's not, not good. He's not good enough for you, Rosemary. <laughs> but Daddy, I love him. No but Daddy nonsense. No but Daddy, I love him me. Get up to your room. <laughs> Go down to the basement. 
down to I go, the basement? Do I go up or do I go down? Do I go up or I do, do I go down? What, what do I do? What a stupid question. <laughs> you told me to go up, but you want to say go down. <laughs> so, fuck you, Dad. Fuck you. So, Fred West had two children with his previous wife named Renna Costello. Rosemary soon became pregnant with their daughter, Heather, as well, leading to her looking after three children by herself, as Fred had found himself in prison under various petty theft and fine evasion charges. Doesn't he sound like a keeper? Really? I mean, and not just, I mean, he got arrested for that, but didn't get arrested for, like, I don't know, buggering an underage girl. (laughs) Buggering. Buggering means? Yes. Yes. That's what buggering means. The more you know. So to call somebody a bugger. Bugger off. Fuck off. Yeah. Yeah, basically. Same thing. <laughs> Call somebody a fuck. <laughs> you fuck. You fuck. You shit bug. <laughs> Fucking knob. So, I mean, dad was probably right. Yeah. yeah. Definitely not a, uh, not a keeper, this guy was. We'll find that out. <laughs> and it was quite a daunting task for someone who was still a child themselves to be watching three kids, two of which aren't hers. Even more daunting when you consider that Rosemary still experienced bouts of violent rage, much like her father. You're no good, Rosemary. You never amount to shit. You're just like your your father. father. (laughs) So it's thought that, actually, during one of these outbursts, Rosemary murdered Fred's eldest daughter, eight-year-old Charmaine, and hid her body until Fred's release from prison. Was that a a coming home present? (laughs) Welcome home, I murdered your kid. I came out all wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you shouldn't have. Which is basically how he reacted, because he did help her. With his help, she actually removed the child's fingers and toes and disposed of the body. Why, 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 why would you remove the fingers and the toes? The only thing I can think of with the fingers would be because to get rid of fingerprints if that's that they're worried about identifying the kid but the toes you got me on that one i there's so many other ways of identifying a body just what maybe she wanted to make finger sandwiches and tootsie rolls (laughs) i got it i thought you left (laughs) who let you back (laughs) who let you back in the house who let you back into the house (laughs) get the fuck out i'll go home So when Rena Costello came looking for her missing daughter, as parents are probably prone to do, she met a similar fate. She was strangled, dismembered, and had her fingers and toes removed. I mean, I guess it's better than a Happy Meal toy. Collect all 20. Collect all 20. Collect all 20. Rosemary and Fred were married shortly after in January 1972. So it really was like a marriage present. I murdered your kid. Their second daughter, May, yes, May West, <laughs> was born in June 1972. <laughs> Why don't you come on up and see me sometime? Except don't actually, because then you'll find all the bodies. Oh. <laughs> yes, spoiler alert, I know, but we're talking about female serial killers. So you should have expected that one. So Rosemary earned a living as a prostitute while Fred committed acts of bondage and violent sex acts on underage girls. The two of them used the cellar of their home as a torture chamber, to which Fred's daughter, Anna Marie, became the first victim. She was sexually assaulted by her father while Rosemary held her down, and she was threatened with savage beatings should she tell anybody what was happening to her. I told you guys, this shit gets dark. Yeah. Gross. Seriously, I hope this man is burning in hell mm, as we speak. Seriously. He's roasting, much like Rosemary was. <laughs> 
<laughs> roasting. Hopefully on a spit. <laughs> uh, hell is like a womb and he is roasting in it. <laughs> That's going on a t-shirt. There we go. I love it. Ding, ding. Eventually, assaulting just family wasn't cutting it enough for the demented couple any longer. I guess they had to branch out a little bit. They had to diversify fran- their franchise. Yeah, they had to franchise. <laughs> They hired 17-year-old Carolyn Owens as a nanny and subjected her to more of the same treatment. She was barred from leaving the house, and the couple threatened to kill her and bury her in the cellar on a daily basis, with Rosemary even going so far as to put a pillow over Owens' face while she was being assaulted. Owens was able to escape and immediately went to the police. Charges were brought against the couple, but Fred West was able to convince a court magistrate that the activities were consensual. Which is some bullshit. That is some bullshit convincing. Basically, he was able to convince them of some bullshit. <laughs> Carolyn Owens was too traumatized by the events she had lived through to testify in court, so both Fred and Rosemary escaped incarceration. It's also worth noting that at the time, Rosemary was pregnant again with the couple's first son, Stephen, who was born in August 1973. You just keep popping them out, don't you? Right. Close your damn legs. <laughs> well... Why why hunt when you have a farm? Right. You could just create a farm. Why buy the milk when you have the cow? Yeah, exactly. There you go. <laughs> Over the next several years, the West resumed their sexual torture and murder spree. A list of their victims included Linda Goh, Lucy Partington, Juanita Mott, Cherise Sieglenthaler, Allison Chambers, Shirley Robinson, and 15-year-old schoolgirls Carol Ann Cooper and Shirley Hubbard. All were sexually assaulted, murdered, dismembered, and buried under the cellar of their home. Do you want poltergeists? Because this is how you get poltergeists. This is how you get them. Yeah. Rosemary had several more children, including daughter Louise in 1978, Barry in 1980, Rosemary Jr. in 1982. What kind of shit-ass nonsense? White, 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 white decisions. (laughs) choices and luciana in 1983 i mean like i guess you're not planning on keeping them no, all that long so their names the idea. don't they could have literally named them child one child two child three because i don't think they plan on them being around that long right where's child one child one bring me my slippers <laughs> oh wait we murdered that one last oh, week damn child two bring me my slippers you're up to bat <laughs> i mean there's just there's an awful sin, an awful lot of sinning going on here, I should say. But would you say it was a sin tub? I would say it's a big sin tub. It's a big one. I gotta get into my accent for that one. It was a sin tub. <laughs> but you named your daughter Junior. That, that I'm sorry. That should be a crime separately in and of itself. Right. Besides hope, the other dark murder shit. I hope you were tried separately for that one. <laughs> So all of the children were aware of their parents' activities. However, Rosemary and Fred maintained strict control over their children's every action. You don't say. Abusive? No. 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 Not them. They seemed so, well, not nice, but not normal either. But they seemed like people. They seemed like humans. (laughs) They They, wore skin suits at least. (laughs) (laughs) I'm also sad to say that Fred's interest in his own daughters didn't stop when Anna Marie moved out to live with her boyfriend. He just switched his attention to Heather and May, the first and second daughters mothered by Rosemary. Heather fought back against her father's abuse, and in 1987 told a friend of hers what was going on in the house. Rosemary and Fred responded by murdering and dismembering their daughter, and forcing their son, Stephen, 
to help them bury her body in the backyard. Poor Stephen. Poor Stephen. One other instance involves daughter Louise. Fred had asked his 13-year-old daughter to bring him some bottles to a room on the first floor of their home. Her siblings reported finding Louise writhing in pain and sobbing that her father had assaulted her. Rosemary was not home at the time. When she got home, Louise confided con- When she got home, Louise confided in her mother, to which she responded, "Oh well, you were asking for it." Again, special place in hell Who for are this you? woman. Yeah. The fucking U.S. government. Special place in hell for this woman. Real sympathetic. Aren't you just? Aren't you just a lovely person? Ain't you a delight? Ain't you a gem? It was ultimately Louise. Yes, fuck off. <laughs> It was ultimately Louise who brought an end to her parents' reign of terror, though, so I guess they're in a twisted sort of way, you can look at that as an upside to a, a situation that really has no upside. She gathered the courage to tell a friend what had happened to her. Her friend, in turn, told her mother, who anonymously tipped off the police. As all sick fucks come to find, they were eventually caught and charged with their crimes. Detective Constable Hazel Savage, which is the coolest name I have ever heard. My name is Rad. In Please my welcome life. To the stage. Hazel, Hazel Savage. Savage. <laughs> she oversaw the search of their home that led to their arrest in 1992. During the trial, the West children testified that it was their mother, Rosemary, who inflicted most of the physical abuse, and their father that told them if they ever told anyone what was going on in the house, they would be, quote, buried under the patio like their sister, Heather. The fact that Heather was buried under the patio became somewhat of a family joke. That, that's not a joke. No, that's not. No, that ain't a joke. This is a joke. Knock, knock. Who's there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a joke. In 1994, Rosemary and Fred were brought before a court magistrate. He was charged with 11 murders and she with nine. As Fred was held on remand for his crimes, he became incredibly depressed, especially after hearing that Rosemary publicly denied any wrongdoing and demonized him as the man who took her daughter and stepdaughter from her. Fred West hung himself in his cell, leaving behind a suicide note addressed to Rosemary. And I won't go into those details there, because it's just a stupid I love you note. Stupid. The world knows you as Rosemary West, and that's good enough for me. Bye, world! <laughs> deuces later <laughs> yes yeet yourself out of existence i will actually allow it in this case because he deserved it he just yeeted out of this mortal coil <laughs> good good deal good for everyone and concerned <laughs> good good for all of us <laughs> rosemary was sentenced to life in prison without parole on november 22nd 1995 happy birthday to her by the way <laughs> like that was a week before her birthday <laughs> She appealed her sentence in 1996 and 2000. Luckily, the 96 appeal was denied, and her 2000 appeal was dropped. To this day, she remains incarcerated. The House of Horrors, as their home was dubbed, was destroyed in October of 1996, and in its place is a pathway leading to the town center. A truly gruesome twosome. One could argue that Rosemary was just as twisted, if not more so, than her husband. Damn right. But what about the solo female killer? A sociopath who victimized the most vulnerable victims, the sick and ailing, and in her own words, said that her ambition was, quote, to have killed more people, helpless people, than any other man or woman who ever lived, unquote. 
<laughs> that was like her yearbook thing. Yes, <laughs> that's voted. how she signed it. Stay cool. Have a great summer. <laughs> voted most likely to have killed more people, helpless people, than any other man or woman who ever lived. Angel of death, Jane Tobin. <laughs> <laughs> most of you have heard of nurses who cross the line and become angels of mercy, killing their patients to put them out of their misery. Merciful, empathetic. Jane Tobin was neither of those things. By her own account, she wished to be notorious in her own time, and her crimes certainly fit the bill. Early accounts of her life and childhood are scant at best, but it is known that Jane, who was born Honora Kelly, was born to Irish immigrants on March 31st, 1854, in Boston, Massachusetts. Her mother, Bridget, died of tuberculosis when she was very young, and her father, Peter, was a raging alcoholic. Shocker. I know. This is just full of alcoholic dads. He was a violent and belligerent, abusive and eccentric, and known to those who knew him as Kelly the Crack, <laughs> which is short for crackpot at the time. Please, so, Can everybody please call me that? <laughs> Kelly so, the Crack? Kelly the Crack. So apparently, that you have to be a special kind of crazy to get your nickname as being crazy, basically. <laughs> crack. Like, everyone knows you're fucking crazy. Right. He became the source of stories and rumors in the local area due to his insanity. Notorious in his own way, the most popular rumor circulated that his rampaging insanity drove him to sew his own eyes shut while employed as a tailor. Sounds like a good time. Right? Sounds, you know, sounds like an excuse to get out of work to me. Good way to relax at home. I need to go home. I seem to have sewed my eyes shut. <laughs> oh, my Lord, can, again? Can someone take me? I can't see. <laughs> In 1863, only a few years after his wife's death, Peter Kelly took his two youngest children, eight-year-old Delia Josephine and six-year-old Honora, Honora? Honora. Honora. To the Boston Female Asylum, an orphanage and home for indigent children. Kelly, Kelly surrendered the girls with very little concern or care and would never see either of them again. Documents from the asylum note that the girls were, quote, rescued from a very miserable home, unquote. I mean... They were in a home with Kelly the Crack. Yeah, <laughs> Kelly the Crack. Not, ha- not fun times for them. Can you imagine him cooking dinner? <laughs> I made y'all dinner! <laughs> with his eyes sewn shut still. <laughs> Dad, you've been stirring an empty pot for 20 minutes. Dad, you're not even in the kitchen. I don't even <laughs> Dad, understand. you're in the living room. I don't know what you're doing here. <laughs> no records have been found or seem to exist documenting Delia and Nora's time at the asylum, but reportedly Delia became a sex worker. Their older sister, Nellie, who had not been surrendered to the orphanage, was committed to a separate asylum after a mental breakdown in her 20s. It's safe to say that the behavior of their father, as well as the problems that seemed to plague the Kelly children, that mental, that mental illness ran strongly in the family bloodline. Passed from parent to offspring, the nut didn't fall far from the tree that bore it. In November 1864, less than a year after being abandoned by her father, Honora was placed as an indentured servant in the home of Mrs. Anne C. Toppin of Lowell, Massachusetts. While she was never formally adopted by the Toppin family, Honora took the surname of her benefactors and eventually became known as a Toppin. The Toppin family already, in fact, had a daughter around Honora's age named Elizabeth. She and Honora reputedly got along well and behaved as sisters to one another. She changed her name to Jane and seemed to excel in school and otherwise appeared completely normal until being jilted by her fiancé. The men's will drive you crazy. <sighs> These men's. After this, distraught and disturbed, she attempted suicide twice and suffered through delusional periods where she attempted to predict the future through the analysis of dreams. 
Though, if this makes you crazy, lock me the fuck up, I guess. Right. Right. And also, no man is this important. Right. Like, honey, eat some ice cream and move and on. And cry and get your life, girl. Right. Watch God, some girl, lifetime. Get a exactly. The G's. Stability seemed to return, albeit too briefly, in 1880 when Jane signed on as a student nurse at a hospital in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Again, she excelled at her work and her studies, but it was perhaps there that Jane's fascination with death and suffering kicked into high gear. Her supervisors and colleagues were disturbed by her obsession with autopsies. During her residency, she would use her patients as guinea pigs for drug experiments, dosing them with various amounts of morphine and atropine. She would alter the prescribed amounts to see what it would do to their nervous systems. That seems normal, right? Right. Yeah, I guess if you're into science, what else could you do? She was left with no choice. For science. (laughs) For science. She would spend a lot of time alone with these patients, mocking up false charts and medicating them to drift in and out of consciousness. It was then that she would even crawl into bed with them. It is not known for certain if any sexual activity occurred during these times, but when she was asked at the time of her arrest, Jane claimed that she derived a sexual thrill from these patients hovering near death, being revived, and then dying again. She would administer the drug cocktail to those she chose as her victims and lie in bed with them, holding them close to her as they breathed their last. This is unusual for female serial killers, who usually kill for vengeance and material gain, not sexual thrill. Or just for the hell of it. Right. It was the, there was no money involved or anything. She was just killing because she liked killing. Uh-huh. She was recommended for the prestigious Massachusetts General Hospital in 1889, claiming several more victims in her dance of death before being fired the following year after these suspicious deaths. You know, <laughs> it, apparently shit caught on pretty quickly. How come everybody who comes in contact with you dies? I don't know. It's weird. Uh, it's weird. Weird, weird ain't coincidence. it? You're fired. <laughs> Damn it. She returned to Cambridge, but only briefly, as she was quickly dismissed for prescribing opiates recklessly. Jane was not to be deterred, though, and instead embarked on a career as a private nurse. She also embarked on a career of poisoning in earnest in 1895 by murdering her landlords. Sure, we'd all like to... No, I'm kidding. Our landlords are nice. In 1899, (laughs) she killed her foster sister Elizabeth by dosing her with strychnine. Many said out of sheer jealousy from an unloved and unwanted child. They got along so well. Well, there was also a man involved, and that was part of Uh, the thing, too, is that Elizabeth got married, and she was jealous mm. that she she was getting all the attention. It was the Marsha, Marsha, Marsha complex. Great. And she just poisoned her and killed her. Instead of of making up a boyfriend, George Glass. So, (laughs) here we are. In 1901, Jane moved in with Alden Davis and his family. The elderly man was seeking private nurse care after the death of his wife, whom, in no twist of irony, Jane had also murdered. Huh. Within the span of weeks, Alden was dead, along with two of his daughters. Small world. Her thirst for murder not yet satiated, she returned home and attempted to woo the husband of her late foster sister. That takes some balls. It really does. (laughs) Her sister, his sister, soon fell ill and died, also by no coincidence. (laughs) He himself was also poisoned by Jane, who did so to quote-unquote prove herself by subsequently nursing him back to health. Munchausen. Right? She even poisoned herself to evoke his sympathy. The ruse didn't work, though, and smartly, he threw her out of his house. (laughs) Just like we we did to Jade. (laughs) Out of the house. Wait. And she keeps finding her way back back in. in. (laughs) You left the door unlocked. Oh, okay. While Jane showed no signs of slowing down and the times made it difficult for suspicion to fall on a woman, she had not avoided suspicion entirely. Too many deaths happened around Jane for it to be simply a coincidence. The surviving members of the Davis family ordered a toxicology exam on Alden's youngest daughter, which showed that she had been poisoned. 
The local authorities soon put a police detail on Jane, and she was subsequently arrested on October 29th, 1901. By 1902, while being held in custody, Jolly Jane, as she was known for her cheerful demeanor, had confessed to murdering 31 people. <laughs> jolly so Jane. Crackpot and, and Jolly. <laughs> but estimates have run as high as 100 total deaths. No accurate hospital records of the deaths was ever compiled, and various families attempted to avoid the scandal by refusing official requests for exhumations and autopsies. At the trial, Jane's attorney grudgingly admitted to 11 deaths and angled for an insanity plea, which Jane easily secured herself on the stand when she testified to the court, quote, that is my ambition, to have killed more people, helpless people, than any man or woman who has ever lived. And it comes full Unquote. circle. Yeah. Pretty sure that that's going to guarantee you a crazy plea in any book. Yeah, easily. Jane was found to be insane by the court and was sentenced to be confined for the remainder of her natural life at the state asylum in Taunton, Massachusetts. Jane finally took the journey into the great beyond where she had sent so many by her own hands in October 1938 at 84 years old. The New York Journal had made claims years prior that Jane wished to be declared insane so she might have a chance of getting out one day, and that may or may not be true. But older attendants at the asylum who attended this nice and quiet old lady may have been inclined to agree. They recalled her smile as she beckoned them into her room. Quote, get some morphine, dearie, she'd say, and we'll go out into the ward. You and I will have a lot of fun seeing them die. Unquote. Yeah, just a sweet, quiet old lady. <laughs> I'm surprised none of them were like, you know what? You did this to other people. I'm just gonna, just gonna do this for you. A remorseless killing machine who, in a chilling side note, was both apprehended and died on the same date, 37 years apart, the same date we were recording this episode, Spooky Nation, <gasps> October 29th, both 1901 and 1938, respectively. Now spooky. 2019. Spooky, 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 this spooky show. <laughs> we have a jingle. <laughs> it's, it's spooky. <laughs> and crepe. <laughs> hey you yes you ah <laughs> are you interested in serial killers of course who isn't not even gonna let you answer that because duh <laughs> why else would you be here and where could you read more about these deadly women and others well yes library also duh but in this fast-paced murder-tastic roller coaster of a world who has the time to read well audible.com fuels your pain for a mere $15 a month, you will have access to thousands of audiobooks in every subject matter you can imagine. Yes, especially true crime, lovely monsters. It's risk-free and it's kind to your eyeballs. Be kind to your faceballs. Listen to your favorites wherever you go. On your phone, in your car, at the gym, anywhere! Anywhere! Get your trial started today and get a free audiobook download of your choice. And just for you, listeners of this spooky show and loyal Spooky Nation, Audible.com is offering a 30-day free trial if you sign up with our exclusive link. AudibleTrial.com slash this spooky show. That's AudibleTrial.com slash this spooky show. This ghoul babe just downloaded The Stories That Haunt Us and Those Who Hunt Monsters. Both Ooh. by some famous FBI people. Ooh, okay. So to recap, be kind to your face balls. Yes. Yes. Tune into audible.com. Yes. And now back to our show. Yes. So let's flash forward into more modern times. It would seem that the changing of the times and the turn of the centuries hadn't dampened the thrill of the hunt for accused and now free serial killer, Carla Homolka. 
Yes. Carla Homolka was one half of the notorious Ken and Barbie killers. She participated in the rape and torture of at least four minor girls and the murders of at least two or three if you count Carla's own sister. But we'll get to that in a moment. To really understand Carla and her role as Barbie in this murderous duo, we first have to take a look at Ken, Paul Bernardo. Paul was born into a pretty well-off family. His affluent father was an accountant and was also a massive creepy shit snack. Shit snack. I love the word shit snack. Holy shit snacks. <laughs> Holy shit snacks. He was very abusive to all of his wives, including Paul's mother, Marilyn, and he liked young girls. When Paul was 11 years old, his father was charged with molesting a young girl, and during this time, it also came out that he was molesting his own daughter as well. Ugh, sicko. Gross. Right? What we're learning here today is men are gross and women are also awful. Yes. Just, <laughs> just, humans, just people are awful. Yeah. Humans in general are just awful. Just the worst. <laughs> we need a new flood. <laughs> a new flood. Overdue. <laughs> I mean, it is uh, typhoon season, so maybe. Hey. It's also Scorpio season. It is Scorpio season. <laughs> I'm Lauren. We did that part. <laughs> We're past that part. <laughs> but but Scorpio season. Prior to his arrest, Kenneth Bernardo would also hide in the bushes outside of people's homes and watch young girls through their window. So again, I repeat, massive creepy shit snack. <laughs> Yuck. Yuck. Kenneth's perversion, coupled with his abusive behavior, sent Marilyn into a deep depression to which she withdrew from her role as a mother completely and had even moved into the basement of the family home. Somehow, none of this bothered Paul, though. You would think, with such a tumultuous home life, he'd be reaching for the black eyeliner and hanging out at the 70s version of Hot Topic. You would think. <laughs> Listening to The Cure. Right? And crying in his room. Just 70s version of a... Uh... Don't listen to Morrissey. My uh, chemical romance. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> but instead, he was noted to be a happy child who was always smiling. His demeanor changed dramatically, though, when his mother told him that Kenneth was not really his father. After the birth of Paul's second older brother, the shit snackery was far too much for poor Marilyn, and she had an affair with an ex-boyfriend, leading to Paul's conception. Paul, after learning this information, snapped. He began to treat his mother very poorly, referring to her as a, quote, slob and a whore. I just, seriously, Paul, your father molests young girls, including your sister, and you're pissed at your mom because he isn't your biological father? Good God, man, get a grip. It sounds like you got your priorities. Yeah. All kinds of bass awkwards. Right? Wouldn't you be like, oh, thank God he's not my real dad. Right? Thank like, thank Lord. God I don't share DNA with him. <laughs> Somehow you still got his shit snackery. Anyway. As he got older, Paul followed into his father's shoes. He had a violent temper and enjoyed publicly humiliating women. Each of his high school girlfriends said they broke up with him because of his violent, abusive nature. It was also at this time that he started to realize his dark sexual fantasies. His first sexual assault was in May of 1987, wherein he raped a 21-year-old woman outside of her family home. This would be the first of many sexual assaults committed by Paul as the Scarborough Rapist. Now, let's flash over to Carla, because this episode is about female serial killers after all. Truth. Yes. Yes. Fuck Paul. Yes. Fuck Paul and down with the patriarchy and all that. (laughs) 
Nearly every article I've read about Carla has described her as pretty, smart, popular, and as having a good home life. Every article also mentions how she had a passion for animals, which is funny considering as a child she thought it would be funny to tie a pillowcase around her friend's hamster and throw it out the window. Jesus Christ. No, no. See, do what you want to humans, except don't actually. Uh, <laughs> but don't hurt an animal. Yeah. I, I feel very strongly about that. Yeah, that poor hamster was singing, I can believe I can fly all the way down. Oh. <laughs> that was unfortunate. <laughs> that was unfortunate and dark. A couple weeks after the hamster's death, Carla said she wanted to dig up the hamster's body because she wanted to see what a decomposing body looked like. I, yeah. So put on your big girl pants and go down to the cemetery and dig one up. Why you gotta <laughs> torment a hamster? What Bitch. did a hamster do to you? Technically isn't digging up a grave uh, a felony yes. or something? I don't care. Don't kill a hamster. <laughs> it's I, a, I agree. It's a misdemeanor. <laughs> put on your big girl yeah. pants. Go big or not at all. She should have tied the pillowcase around herself and seen if she could fly thrown herself out the window yeah fast forward to when she was 17 working at a vet's office carla went to a pet convention and this is where she met paul now 23 and the two immediately hit it off from all reports they were so attached to each other and they eventually disappeared from their group of friends to have sex it was at this time that they discovered they both had the same sadomasochistic fantasies leading them to pursue a master slave sexual relationship you like hitting people? I like hitting people. So oh my weird. God. We have you so like much in common. People? I like being hit. <laughs> we have so much in common. Yeah, she, um, apparently when she had lost her virginity, she had told her friends, like, it involved choking and handcuffs and all this, like, bondage stuff. And then the guy that she slept with was like, no, it was. It was just Ooh. regular sex. You're like, no. He's like, like None no. of that happened. It was just sex. Carla was also fine with Paul raping women while they were together. How do we know this? He asked. Can you imagine that conversation? How does one even bring that up? During pillow talk? Hey, uh, baby, so... What if I was a rapist? <laughs> <laughs> hey, so... What if I was a rapist? And her response was, That'd be cool. Like, yeah, okay. Like, how does this come up? Like, I hope he would, like, maybe float it as a hypothetical at first. Like, hypothetically. If I was a rapist. I was a rapist. How would you feel? (laughs) Whatever, honey. I got work in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) Two months into their relationship, the two became engaged, and they moved in with Carla's family so they could save up some money before moving out on their own. Carla's parents adored Paul and thought he was like the son they never had. Carla's younger sister, Tammy, also loved Paul and viewed him as an older brother. Paul, too, loved Tammy, but in a far more sinister way. One point of contention in this, his relationship with Carla was that she had not been a virgin when they met. He was obsessed with taking women's virginities, and Carla felt like a failure because that's the one thing she could not give him. So she decided to give Paul her little sisters. So consider it. It started with just opening the blinds of her sister's bedroom window so Paul could masturbate to Tammy as she undressed, but Carla still felt bad and felt like she wasn't giving Paul enough. Gross. Right? You don't need to give that man shit. And she's like 14 or 15. Honey, you don't need to give that man shit. Especially not your little sister's body. Like, anyway. 
This is when she decided that she was going to drug her little sister so that Paul could take her virginity. In July of 1990, Carla stole some drugs from the vet clinic where she worked in order to drug her sister. She laced Tammy's spaghetti, but unfortunately for Ken and Barbie, Tammy woke up only a minute into the rape. So it's not mom's spaghetti, it's sister's spaghetti. Yeah. <laughs> and her palms were sweaty. And her palms, palms were sweaty. Were sweaty. Sister woke sister's up spaghetti. Sister woke up already. Oh my god. <laughs> Sister woke up already. <laughs> Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jane. <laughs> Sometimes I do witty things. Carla was persistent, though. She was bound and determined to give Paul her sister's virginity. It's like the fucking Pokemon she can't let go. So, in December of 1990, just a couple of days before Christmas, Carla spiked Tammy's drink, causing the girl to pass out, and then held a halothane-soaked cloth over the 15-year-old's face while the two took turns raping her. How they, do you look at your sister and think, yeah, I'm going to rape that? Oh, oh, it gets worse. Oh. I promise it gets worse. Shudder. <gasps> so, they filmed the entire thing on the same camera that he used earlier in the night to film, like, their family gathering. Gross. Christmas bullshit. Yeah. Um, and then when Tammy woke up, she started to vomit and aspirate on it. So, realizing that she was choking, the couple cleaned her up, dressed her, and called 911. Oh, how nice of them. How nice of you. How charitable. (laughs) When the ambulance arrived, the couple told them that she had drank too much and got a little crazy, and that's why she got sick. Tammy had chemical burns on her face from the halothane-soaked cloth that had been pressed to her mouth when she was assaulted, but Paul and Carla said that they were from the two trying to perform CPR on her. And somehow... Somehow, the cops were like, yeah, that makes sense. Accidental death. Like, I see nothing wrong here. I see here. nothing wrong here. Clearly, your spit is made of acid, and that's right. what happened. Also, she's not underage and drinking under your supervision. Not at all. I mean, granted, this was like the 80s so and 90s, so I don't know if they were as strict on... This is in Canada also. Yeah. I think Canada was 17. I think it's 18 or something. I'm not sure. 17 or 18, they right might, around they there. They might have probably, because they're Canadians and they're too nice, but like, well, just don't do it next time. Don't do it next time. Oh, okay. don't do it again. I'm so- <laughs> hey, I'm sorry. <laughs> hey, I'm sorry. sorry. I won't do it again. You know who wasn't sorry? Carla. Dope. She. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> this, that bitch. This bitch. She had zero remorse about the death of her sister, and she wrote a letter to her friend in speaking about her father mourning Tammy's death, saying that he just needed to get over it. Jeez. Yeah, meanwhile, she was also pissed because he was like, I'm not giving you money for your wedding, just go get married at the courthouse. And she was like, oh my Whatever, God. daddy. Gosh, dad. I'm your only daughter now. <laughs> I'm your only daughter now. <laughs> Thanks to me, but you don't know that. You don't know that. Oh my God. Oh my God. Can't believe you're way more concerned with the death of Tammy. I'm alive, father. <laughs> you just, just so, just need to get over it. God, it's been like Aww. five minutes. <laughs> there were new, also numerous videos that the couple had recorded of themselves having sex with Carla in Tammy's old clothes and role playing as Tammy. Yeah. Yeah. No. And she'd even speak sexually about her death and the night that she died. (laughs) How do you? How? How? Oh, when she was choking on her own vomit. Oh, so hot. I mean, I 
don't know what on earth she could have said, but just the fact alone that she was like, oh, I'm Tammy. Fuck me. Paul. Like, <laughs> Paul. <laughs> no, like, this is just too... that enough is like, girl, you need help. You you need you need Jesus. I don't say that lightly. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> so this would not be the last sexual assault the pair would perform together when Paul began blaming Carla for her sister's death and complaining that she was no longer around for him to have sex with, Carla brought him another pretty teen virgin named Jane. She <laughs> drugged the girl and videotaped her sexual assault. Unlike the other victims to come, Jane actually survived and had no recollection of her assault. So after having raped and, you know, murdered Tammy and now raping and terrorizing Jane, Bernardo's thirst to share his rapes with Homolka increased. In June, he kidnapped Leslie Mahaffey and brought her to the home that he shared with Carla the two repeatedly raped Mahaffey over a period of several days, videotaping many of the assaults. They eventually murdered her, cut her body into pieces, and then encased those pieces in cement and threw them in the lake. It wasn't until June 29th that some of her remains were found by a couple who just happened to be canoeing on the lake. Just happened to be canoeing. Up, oh, up! Oh, suddenly a hand. Which, ironically, was also the day that the two got married. Oh, that's yeah. so, I was going to right? say romantic, but. <laughs> it's the opposite of. It's quite the opposite. Also, you do nothing for me sexually. You want to get married? Right. Yeah. Like, I need to rape in order to be sexually satisfied. Marry me? Marry me? Marry me. <laughs> yes, absolutely. A million times. Yes. <laughs> so they had an elaborate wedding at a Niagara-on-the-Lake Ontario church. Bernardo had orchestrated the wedding plans, which included them riding in in a white horse-drawn carriage, and Carla was dressed in a very elaborate and expensive white gown. The guests were all served a lavish meal, and the couple exchanged vows, which included Bernardo's insistence that Carla promised to, quote, love, honor, and obey him. Oh, honey. Oh, um, if, I were, if I were a bird, my... My, like, head feathers would be burp right now. I thought you were going to say if I was a bird, I'd, I'd shit, shit on, on him. <laughs> if I were a bird, I would shit on him, too. Just, I would be all plumed right now, like, uh-uh. Love, honor, and what? What did you say? You want to get slapped around a little bit? Okay, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> so, the following year in April, the couple kidnapped a 15-year-old girl named Kristen French from a church parking lot. The couple took her back to their home, and for several days, they again videotaped her as they humiliated, tortured, and sexually abused her. Kristen fought to survive, but just before the couple left for Easter Sunday dinner with Carla's family, they murdered her. They found uh, Kristen's body, eventually, in a ditch in Burlington, Ontario, on April 30th. So, in January, the next year, this is a... It's taking a while for people to catch on. Carla separated from Paul after months of his constant physical abuse and his attacks becoming more violent because before she was okay with being hit because it was, I don't know. She was in love. It. Love now. Yeah. Now she was being hospitalized. And so she was like, nah, 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 nah. <laughs> nah. <laughs> this is much. I'm out. 
Uh, at first it was sexy, and now it's just ow. <laughs> <laughs> at first it was sexy, sexy, and now it's just ow. No, that needs to go on a t-shirt, stop. too. <laughs> first it was sexy, now it's ow. Trademark. <laughs> so evidence against the Scarborough rapist was piling up, and many witnesses had come forward with a composite drawing of the suspect, which was then eventually released. Uh, many of the people that Paul knew, or that knew Paul, had contacted the police saying, like, yo, this guy matches your sketch. Yeah, he, <laughs> this guy he really did, right. too. The sketch looks almost exactly like yeah. him. <laughs> so the police interviewed him and obtained a saliva swab, which eventually proved to, that he was the rapist. But when they interviewed him, they're like, nah, this guy ain't good for it. And let him go. And I guess he was the, charming. Yeah. That's yeah. how all serial killer <laughs> yeah. guys get away with shit. They were right. charming. He was too nice of a guy. Um, and it was the nineties. So there's like 200 plus DNA swabs that need to be run. So DNA testing back then took a long time. Yeah. Right. So there's no way that they would have gotten to it instantaneously. It took like six months to run a, to run a DNA sample back then. You're at the back of the line. You can't just, you can't just cut the line. (laughs) But lines work. Yeah. (laughs) But once they were able to prove that the Ontario green ribbon murder task force, which I just, love that name that's a good that name. is a good a name good well chosen ontario murder task force murder task force um they zoned in on paul and carla carla was fingerprinted and questioned um they were interested in the mickey mouse watch that carla had that resembled the one that Kristen was wearing the night that she disappeared girl <laughs> also it was uh rare and mint condition and worth 20 grand and, and she's just wearing it and she's just it scuffed it. up <laughs> mucking it up <laughs> mucking it up how dare you how dare during you. the questioning carlo learned that uh paul had already been identified as the scarborough rapist so in realizing that they were about to be caught she confessed to her uncle that paul was a serial rapist and murderer and then obtained a lawyer to begin for negotiations for a plea deal in order to testify against him. In mid-February, Paul was arrested and charged with the rapes and murders of Mahaffey and French. During the search of their home, police discovered Paul's diary, which had written descriptions of each crime. <laughs> he kept way a diary go, like a girl. Dear diary... Today, today, I murdered a girl. <laughs> today, I raped and killed someone. What did you do today, diary? Sounds like fun. And Catch like, up with you soon. Like little stickers XO, on the page. XO. Paul. Scarborough rapist crossed out. Yeah, his, line, his name crossed out. Scarborough rapist written over it. <laughs> Sign Scarborough rapist. With a little angry face. Yeah. <laughs> with some like filigree. Anyway. <sighs> Um, so the plea bargain that she got was very controversial because according to the deal, she would do a 12 year sentence, but then be eligible for parole after serving three years with good behavior. She agreed to all the terms and the deal was set, but then afterwards, oh, afterwards, oh, afterwards. uh, they found tapes that went against her whole portrayal of being the abused wife that was forced to participate. I had no choice. Yeah. <laughs> he made me. Except he didn't. Except that didn't happen. Except when you was... were very gleeful in your yeah. participation. So gleeful, in fact, when I was doing research, there was a Reddit thread that was talking about the videos, and someone said that their professor had seen one of them, because he was working in law enforcement at the time, or working in a way that he could see them, 
And in one of them, Carla was masturbating with the severed finger of one of the girls. So, yeah, you weren't no abuse. Yeah, you woman. weren't you weren't innocent in all this, girl. No, sweetheart. Nice try. <laughs> but, you know, but like a true sociopath, she dived right into save my own skin mode and yeah. turned on him so she could get out of it. Good point. And the deal had already been made, and so they had to honor it, and she could not be retried for her crimes because double jeopardy. Right. Paul was convicted on all counts of rape and murder and received a life sentence on September 1st of 95. There were rumors that Carla's punishment was too lenient. Um, after pictures surfaced of her sunbathing and partying with other prisoners. <laughs> like, there were other prisoners partying. That's like when celebrities go to rehab and they're like, oh, you know, just sitting by the pool, you know, no big deal. Still addicted to coke. Yeah. <laughs> um, there were also tabloids that reported that she was in a, re- a lesbian relationship with a fellow inmate. Um, and the National Parole Board denied her application for parole. So, on July 4th, 2005, Carla Homoka was released from prison. Strict conditions for her release limited her movements and whom she could contact. She was not allowed at all to contact Paul or the families of the murdered teens. Which What, what are you going to say to them? What, what would you say? I murdered your daughter. <laughs> probably about about what she would yeah, say probably yeah <laughs> I, I don't see a i'm sorry coming out of her mouth no she shows up on the doorstep and she's just like when i was little i put a hamster in a pillowcase and i threw it out the window i did the same thing to your daughter <laughs> god Ugh. um according to one of her lawyers uh she was paralyzed with fear and completely panicked um and that she could not conceive what her life would be like on the outside which to me says, fine, keep her ass then inside. Keep her in prison. Yeah. Like she should not have been released. Why'd you take the damn plea bargain then? And you knew, you knew you were going to yeah. get out. And this is another one that got married and had children. Like, I don't understand. Why could she find a man and I can't? <laughs> well, every, every pot finds a lid, I suppose. I guess. This pot hasn't found a lid. That's <laughs> but, so sad. But she found a man and got had children. But she raped and murdered at least two young teen girls. Like, yeah, she raped and murdered, but she's not that bad. But, I mean... <laughs> I would be interested to see what the husband looks like because this man's standards must be in the gutter. Yeah, I I didn't look him up, actually. That might be something to do later. Yeah, I'm just kind of (laughs) curious. I just got to know what this motherfucker looks like. This goofy, buck-tooth, fucking alien-looking motherfucker. I'm just guessing. (laughs) (laughs) And while it is truly terrifying that such a person could be walking the streets free today... Some might argue that she served her time and should be given a second chance. No. 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 <laughs> Absolutely not. The, the ghoul babes definitely do not think that. Sometimes the law swings the opposite direction, though. Juana Barraza, sentenced to a total of 759 years in prison, will likely never see the light of day again. And perhaps it's best for all of us that way. Of course. I had to go with the former wrestler for obvious reasons. I'm a big pro wrestling fan. 
Secret, secret. <laughs> Not a secret. Not a secret. Not at all. Or at least I was until The Undertaker lost to Brock Lesnar of all fucking people at WrestleMania, ending his undefeated streak, which pissed me off. But I'm oh, getting off topic. Hey, get, let's get back to murder now. <laughs> let's get back to murder. <laughs> Unless you're going to murder The Undertaker. <laughs> Absolutely not. Brock Lesnar. No, I'm not calling him out. Please don't show up at my house, Brock. You're, He'd eat you. He scares me. <laughs> He's just going to eat you. you. I hope you realize this. He looks like a garbage pail With kid. With a little bit of the bubbly. I'm not calling him out and then proceed <laughs> to call him a fucking garbage pail kid. Read your fucking story. I'm going to read my fucking story. But yeah, I'm getting off topic. This segment was about Mexican pro wrestler Juana Barraza, and now it's about The Undertaker again. <laughs> no, no. So not a whole lot's known about her backstory. The main points of focus were that she was born in 1958 in a rural area north of Mexico City. Her mother was an alcoholic who traded 12-year-old Juana to a man for just three beers. Certainly makes Charles Manson's wow. mom seem like mother of the year there, right? right? At least she got a picture. At least she got a picture out of the deal, whereas Juana's mother was like, I'll do it for three. <laughs> I'll do it for three. She was putting her on the low end of the market. Like, right. You know, the she, man... She could have bartered way more. She could have. Like, way, way more. You could have gotten four. a picture, too. You at least four. two pictures had you angled it right, but bitch just took the first offer. He's like, oh, I'll give you three beers. And she's like, sold. Sold. That's not how negotiations work, Brenda. Sold to the man in the back. The man with the scar over his eye and looks totally trustworthy. I like beer. Sold. <laughs> you look like you could babysit. So the man reportedly forced himself on her while she was in his care, and she eventually became pregnant with his son. Juana went on to have three more children, but sadly, her eldest son died from injuries sustained from a mugging. Aww. Whatever happened to, give me your wallet. Okay, thanks. I'll be on my way now. Like, whatever happened to that shit? D did it ever go that way? I don't know if it ever went that way. The friendliest mugger ever. Like, excuse me, I don't mean to bother you, but uh, can I have your wallet, please? By the way, this is a mugging. <laughs> I feel like that's how it goes in Canada. Probably. Yes. <laughs> Barazza had a huge interest in Lucha Libre-style wrestling, which means freestyle wrestling. It's characterized by colorful masks and high-flying maneuvers. The masks are linked to a wrestler's honor, and sometimes when a wrestler loses a match, they will have to remove their mask. Also, to remove another wrestler's mask is considered a great show of disrespect and is highly frowned upon. Side note, I did look at a picture of her in costume. She wears all pink, like the Pink Ranger, and uh, her mask is shaped like a butterfly. What the Why actual am I flying her murdering in that suit? Right, <laughs> just kicks open the door. <laughs> what <laughs> in the actual flying fuck? <laughs> it's funny because it's flying and she had a butterfly mask. I was gonna say <laughs> the flying fuck should have been her wrestling name. Oh, it should have been the flying fuck. However, it she was didn't give one <laughs> zero. Uh, however, it was La Dama del Silencio, which means the Lady of Silence, which sounds like a total serial killer name. It does. It really does. It definitely does. Or like a mute. People. Or like a mute, <laughs> yes. <laughs> the Lady of Silence. But she was stocky and physically strong, therefore she was prime pick for a wrestler. Beginning in 2003, police were discovering the bodies of elderly women beaten and strangled inside their residences. Based on eyewitness reports and sketches, the police decided they were looking for a stocky male who wore women's clothing. Rather than believe... Shade. Yes. The shade of it all. Rather than believe it could be a woman, they, they were, were like, like nah. oh, it's some dude wearing a woman's clothes. 
Oh, it's just some dude. <laughs> some dude. Look at this dude. This dude. <laughs> uh, they called the killer Matavijitas, which translates to old lady killer. But I guess they weren't I like very... the other name better. Yeah. yeah uh, lady of Silence. Yeah, that works better. <laughs> that does work a lot better. Way more creative. So they deduced that the killer was most likely abused by an elderly relative as a child and chose their victims as a sort of retaliation. Ding, 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 ding. Ding, ding, ding. Except for, you know, the gender. <laughs> Well, well, I mean, I mean she would kill her mom. mom. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, if she's like, I'm going to get you back, mom, for selling me for three fucking beers, you bitch. Mm-hmm. Could have at least gotten a full six pack. <laughs> but no, three. Half a six pack. Bok, bok, bitch. <laughs> bok, bok, <laughs> bitch. <laughs> As a result, they began rounding up known trans prostitutes for questioning. This sort of profiling got them into some pretty hot water As with the community. Well it should. As yeah. well it should. And it hindered their investigation greatly, allowing the murders to continue for three more years, the final one occurring in 2006. I mean, maybe if the communication between the community and the police was just a little bit better, they would have realized it wasn't a man they were looking for at all, and Juana Barraza would have been caught much sooner. I feel like they wouldn't have listened, though. I feel like it was no. maybe it was already like so entrenched that they're like, nah, it's totally a dude in women's clothing. Lock them all up. Nah, it's a man. Like... Some man. And somebody would have come up and be like, no, we saw her. It was a lady. She went into the house and like strangled. Like, nope, nope, nope you're wrong. Nope. It was, it was a man. You need your eyes checked. It was yeah. a man. I feel like they wouldn't have bought it. Yeah. Haven't you been listening to us? We are looking for a man. Yeah, so. I don't think they would have listened. clothing? <laughs> In 2006, just as Barazza was leaving the scene of her latest murder, an 82-year-old woman whom she had strangled with a stethoscope See, this is why I don't like going to the doctor. <laughs> Are you afraid the doctor's going to strangle you with a stethoscope? In a yes, Maria. <laughs> Always. In a lucha costume? <laughs> if the doctor comes through wearing a pink butterfly lucha costume, oh, I'm out. Oh, please, please tell me that their the wrestling name is El Doctor Le del Muerto. <laughs> the doctor, the doctor of, of death. death. <laughs> uh, this is why I don't like going to the doctor, y'all. Stethoscopes. <laughs> but a younger woman who was renting a room in the victim's home returned to find the old woman's dead body. She immediately called the police, and with the witness's help, they were able to arrest Barazza before she had the chance to leave the property. Luckily. Luckily for every other old woman in that town. Mm -hmm. And I I hear that she was physically strong and stocky, so they probably had a hell of a time bringing her down. But I have to say, how difficult would it be to strangle, like, an 80-year-old woman? Yeah, it's not like... I mean, they're basically, their bones are brittle, and they're basically made of paper at that point. At so that like, point, yeah. I feel like a, you could, a, pill, a, a you know, a sharp hit from a pillow would kill him. Right. <laughs> sharp? <laughs> like, if you just went whack with a pillow too hard, dead. <laughs> oh, sorry. Sorry, Grandma. <laughs> Didn't mean to. I, I said catch. I just hit you with a Nerf football. Non-sponsored. <laughs> <laughs> so Juana confessed to that final killing, but insisted that that was the only one that she had committed with the other elderly murders being carried out by various other people whom she had collaborated with. It wasn't me. It was a masked wrestler. <laughs> it wasn't me. But wasn't I can't me. tell you the identity because Lucha Libre. <laughs> because Lucha Libre. <laughs> the police were able to see through this facade, finding her fingerprints at several of the crime scenes to back up their suspicions. And boy, did they have egg on their face and they found it was a female. <laughs> They charged her with 16 different murders, although it's believed that she killed up to 49 people. Oof. That's a lot. That's a lot of people. She was sentenced to 759 years in prison. Baratza eventually admitted that her motive for killing matched what police had originally thought, 
feeling leftover anger towards her mother for trading her away for three fucking beers to a man who abused her. She felt a general hatred for elderly women, believing she was creating a better world by eliminating them. I can't imagine why she'd feel that way. Aw, gee, I can't even figure out why you're thinking that. (laughs) Can't even begin to see your thought process. But one thing that struck the police was Baratza's methodical selection of her victims. She had received a list of women who were on a government assistance program and narrowed down the elderly women who lived alone. She would pretend to be a nurse sent to them by the government to check their vitals in order to gain access to their homes, where she would then select a weapon at the scene, such as a telephone wire or nylon stocking or a stethoscope. Have I mentioned that I hate the doctor? (laughs) To this day, Juana Barraza is alive and serving her 759-year prison sentence. Her story was featured on an episode of Deadly Women titled Payback, as well as several documentaries, and she even had a Criminal Minds episode based on her titled Machismo. I just... Crimes against kids and old people are the ones that make me so sad. Right, and this is primarily what we were, like, talking about this entire... I didn't even realize that until you just said something. I mean, I... Yes, it's sad, but I'm just more boggled by the fact that you're like, this is why I don't like doctors stethoscopes of all the <laughs> shit you could be afraid of at the doctor needles right it x-rays with you. pokey bits yeah x-rays that have like you know radiation knives and scalpels no i don't know there's something about stethoscopes, stethoscopes. there's something threatening about them i don't trust them i never have demon stethoscopes i, just, I can't they can hear my insides good are there any there <laughs> Not, Maybe not that's really. what you're afraid of. Not really. I don't you're want people to find finding out the truth. That's <laughs> it. That's it. See? Nope. You heard it here first. I don't want people to hear the demons inside of me. <laughs> Shut up, Phil. <laughs> Shut up, Phil. They're just like, please let us out. Let us out. It's scary and She's dark She's had in us here. in here forever. Quiet, you. I just wanted a candy. <laughs> <laughs> so modern crimes catch the headlines and spawn documentaries, movies, and even plays about their subjects. No one can deny the draw of such cases when they can be easily covered 24 hours a day by the buzzing mass media. But where would they all be without someone to lead the way? The first accused female serial killer in American history, Lavinia Fisher. Even death had to start somewhere. At some point, he had to pull on his robe and pick up his scythe. And perhaps he did so after visiting the beautiful Lavinia Fisher, reported to be the first female serial killer in America. Not much is known about Lavinia's early life. All that is known is that she was born around 1793 and spent most of her life, as did her husband John, around the area of Charleston, South Carolina. Hey. There you go. Imagine that. The pair owned an inn known as the Six Mile Wayfarer House, which, as accurate namesake would attest to, was six miles outside of the city of Charleston. (laughs) Not exactly creative naming conventions, but it gets the job done. Hey, if it's stupid but it works, it's not stupid. Right? (laughs) Marketing. Myrtle Beach, the post office. (laughs) (laughs) The Fishers managed the establishment, which was a stop for many a weary traveler in the 19th century. Problem was, though, that many of these weary travelers, according to reports to the local sheriff, were going missing after being invited to stay by the lovely Lavinia, who was reportedly exceedingly beautiful. She would invite these lonely travelers in out of the cold and on the offer of a warm meal and a lovely face, and a good number would take her up on her charm. She would ask them about their occupations, trying to determine if they had money or not. Of course. Right? Smart lady. I mean, she ain't gonna, like, rob no poor person. What's the point? Right. Mama didn't raise no fool. Exactly. Why waste the time? 
She would then send the tired sojourners up to bed with a warm cup of tea brewed from the noxious and toxic oleander plant. The men would drink the tea and go to bed, which was her husband John's cue to make sure they were dead by stabbing them. (laughs) (laughs) Death by stab. Extra, make sure they were extra dead. (laughs) Death by John. Death by John, basically. (laughs) Another more popular version of the legend goes that Lavinia's special tea was only strong enough to make them very drowsy. When they would retire to bed, Lavinia would pull a lever, which would collapse the bed, dropping the victim through a trap door in the floor, a la Sweeney Todd, Ah. down into the basement where John was waiting. It was there that he would kill them and dismember their bodies while Lavinia saw to stealing all of their cash. Sweeney Todd with less singing, I hope. Yeah, it wasn't a musical. Yeah, but that's also (laughs) like, okay, okay. It's South Carolina. Yes. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm from there. It's beautiful. But, like, science goers, we are not. I mean, they had, <laughs> like, a little... at that time. They had an nah. interesting little scheme, though. I mean, they're, you know, pretty enerprising highwaymen, basically. Like, you know... Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, like, to pull off the lever yeah, going down the like, floor... Yeah, that's, like, that's a lot. That's some Emperor's that's New Groove easement Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Much of what actually occurred has been so wildly exaggerated across the centuries that factual accounts are hard to come by. In fact, at the time, despite reports of travelers going missing at the inn, due to a lack of evidence, as well as the popularity of the couple with the locals, these complaints came to nothing. Some claim that the Fishers killed 20 to 30 victims around this time, and some accounts go as high as 100 deaths. Others claim that the Fishers never actually killed anyone, as bodies of the victims were never found. Claims against them seem to be bogus. Never saw it. Didn't happen. <laughs> no Picture bodies. didn't happen. Exactly. No bodies. Why not? That is, until David Ross. David Ross had been left behind in the area to stand watch after a vigilante gang went to the Fisher's neighborhood in February 1819 to purportedly put a stop to gang activity, quote-unquote, that was occurring there. Yes, even back then, they had the hood. (laughs) The hood. (laughs) Satisfied they had completed their lofty task, the group returned to Charleston and left David Ross as a guard to ensure that no further funny business would ensue. Funny business is a fun term. Say it again. Funny business. Funny business. (laughs) Funny business didn't wait long, though. Early the next day, Ross was attacked by two men and dragged before the gang that had been terrorizing the region. You know, the one that the vigilante group was so sure was gone. Yeah, that one. (laughs) Ah, that one. That Hmm. one. Amongst the gang was Lavinia Fisher, whom Ross looked to for help. Wrong move. (laughs) Rather than help him, she choked him and smashed his head through a window. Uh, this was Help a me. badass okay. bitch. Ah. Wow. You fucking snitches get stitches, bitch. <laughs> the original snitches get stitches. Exactly. <laughs> Ross managed to escape and immediately alerted the authorities. Immediately following the strange incident, a traveler named John Peoples asked at the Wayfarers if there were any vacancies. Lavinia replied that there were not, but he was welcome to come in out of the cold and have some tea. What kind of tea? Well, lucky for him, John Peoples just happened to hate tea. (laughs) And it was likely that that saved his life. Rather than appear rude to his host, he dumped the tea when Lavinia wasn't looking. She asked him questions for hours before suddenly having a change of heart, letting him know that there was, in fact, a room available. Oh, coincidence. He went to bed, but was suspicious about all the questions he'd been asked. Worried about being a target for robbery, he slept in the wooden chair by the door rather than in the bed. Smarter than the average bear. He was. In the middle of the night, he awoke to the sound of the bed collapsing into the floor. It was then that he realized the Fisher's plan and jumped out the window. (laughs) 
riding onto Charleston to alert the authorities. I hope it wasn't a high window. I don't know. I was just like picturing him going, bah, bah, and just running for the window and diving out. <laughs> I mean, that's a good reason to jump out of a window. I mean, if it's, yeah, if people are trying to murder you, I would think that's like, holy shit, out the window I go. But so John Peoples had his peepers on. Jeepers creepers. I'm going to choke you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna choke you. <laughs> Based on these two reports, authorities now had the names of the assailants, which apparently they had lacked prior. They were immediately dispatched to the location where they located Lavinia and John and two other gang members. John, in a noble attempt to protect his wife, surrendered and gave up the other members of the gang during later interrogation. It was a futile effort. The pair were arrested, not for murder, but for the crime of highway robbery. Oh. <laughs> Suspiciously, the six mile in and everything inside of it burned to the ground not long after the arrest. Very mm. suspicious. Suspicious, eh? Mm. The pair were found guilty, but were given an appeal by the court, which would be heard in January the following year. During this time, the Fishers occupied themselves with escape plans. They were housed together, which I guess was nice of the jail to do. I suppose. At the Old City Jail in Charleston, in a six by eight foot cell, but were not heavily guarded. Yeah. I guess they should have Sounds been. Sounds about right. They probably should have been. <laughs> On September 13th, they put their escape plan into action, but it quickly fell apart. The ropes they had made from prison linens broke, leaving Lavinia trapped inside the cell while John got to the outside and to freedom. <laughs> later, bitch. <laughs> Except he didn't later, bitch. <laughs> he was unwilling to continue the escape plan without his wife and was soon recaptured. To which she was probably like, you fucking idiot. <laughs> Why didn't you go? <laughs> that was the whole idea. I would have been fine. The pair were remanded and put under much tighter security. I mean, at least he was a good ride or die. I guess. Kind of. Yeah, sort of. The Constitutional Court rejected their appeals, perhaps latently due to the escape attempt. And on February 4th, 1820, both were sentenced to be hanged. John Seam resigned to his fate and sought counsel in a local minister, but Lavinia seemed to have none of it. She was convinced that the governor would pardon her and would not have the heart to execute a woman. I mean, hey, Maybe. shoot your shot, girl. It could have also been that she was banking on the fact that there was, according to local legend, a law in the books in South Carolina that forbade the execution of a married woman. What? She had such faith in this notion that on the day of her execution, she arrived to the gallows in her wedding dress. Oh, she's nothing <laughs> if not theatrical. I she guess. arrived just in time to see John hung first after his letter of contrition and Christian penance was read aloud. So not married anymore. I was about to say, well, you ain't married anymore. There You're goes that big loophole that she did not uh, anticipate. Yeah, it's still death to you part. Yeah, he's, he's dead. dead. And he's dead, honey. Yeah. Lavinia had no plans to go so meekly and quietly. Her last words were reportedly, quote, cease. I will have none of it. Save your words for others that want them. If you have a message for the devil, tell me now. I'll be seeing him shortly. God unquote. Damn. <laughs> Lavinia then jumped off the scaffold and hanged herself like a fucking boss. <laughs> I'd like to think she also did it with both middle fingers all the way up. Right. God damn, what a hardcore Suck lady. Suck on this one. Sit on this one. <laughs> Suck on this one. Sit on the. <laughs> Thus ended the saga of the first, maybe, serial killer that was a woman in American history. Or did it? Dun, dun, dun. dun. 
There's still a lot of mystery surrounding Lavinia Fisher, and perhaps being rightly or wrongly accused of these murders is what causes her spirit to supposedly linger at the old city jail in Charleston, South Carolina. Tour guides and guests have reported seeing her apparition behind barred windows and to hear her screaming down the halls where she was imprisoned before her execution. Nah, it was just me. It was me, it was me screaming. <laughs> I've never been to Charleston, South Carolina in my life, but it was me. Joke's on you. It was me. <laughs> I just love the fact that you go in there because I've been there, but I don't recall hearing screaming or seeing anything. Um, but just the fact that you go in there and you just hear, ah! <laughs> you try to ask her any questions, you're just responded by screams. <laughs> How are you? Ah! Like, okay, I get it. You're upset. Um, why are you still here? Ah! <laughs> like, girl, words. Well, I mean. Ah, 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 <laughs> like, and now she's a dolphin. Ah, 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 ah. <laughs> she went full flipper on us, ladies and gentlemen. You never go full flipper. <laughs> well, hopefully one day if things take off for the ghoul babes, nudge, nudge. Wink, wink. <laughs> we can go check these things out for ourselves. I mean, I, for one, would be interested in hearing Lavinia's side of the story, Just whether she's not screaming. Screaming at me <laughs> or not. It all is. Ah! <laughs> Ah, also. Ah, also. That would be me. <laughs> I hear, ah, and I go, ah, also. You just scream back at her. <laughs> Screaming intensifies. <sighs> Speaking of her side of the story, we really want to thank all of our listeners who make this crazy thing we do possible. We love hearing from you and getting your feedback, so hit us up on social media. We have an Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook page that you can reach us through. Also, you can message us on our website, which is thisspookyshow.wix, which is W-I-X, site.com slash thisspookyshow. And speaking of our website, we've done some small upgrades. Yay, on our- upgrades! Yay! <laughs> on our main page, you'll now notice not one, but two extra buttons. Two. One, one button. button. Two, two buttons. buttons. <laughs> see how he did that magic <laughs> one of them will take you to our lonely patreon page that has no patrons yet oh please please please, please, please be please. one of our patrons won't you please we give you stuff <laughs> it's pretty cool stuff <laughs> plus you know remember the uber that we have to pay yeah, we gotta pay off that uber we do have to pay off that uber and the other links to our merch store on Zazzle. There's a whole bunch of cool stuff on there. And some new things. Woo, new things. Yay! There's a pint glass and a bottle opener and a couple new shirts that are on there. I think there's a car air freshener that's on there right now. Ooh. Yeah. car can smell spooky, can friends. It can smell spooky fresh. It can smell like a sin tub. <laughs> it's Christmas water, Cletus. Shut up. <laughs> I know it's Christmas water, Cletus. Shut up. <laughs> So for that special spooky friend or loved one in your life, the holidays are coming. Just saying. And speaking of holidays. Ooh, so it seems appropriate that we are recording this the week before Halloween, spooky fam. Because while this episode will be released well after our favorite Devil's Holiday, (laughs) we wanted to share our plans with you. Aren't we sweet? Aren't we? We're so nice. <laughs> Tomorrow on the 30th, the Ghoul Babes will be embarking on our very own first paranormal investigation to Tonopah, Nevada, where we will be staying in the suite of the famed Lady in Red, a spirit that haunts the Mizpah Hotel after her untimely death. <gasps> <Ooh. sighs> Gasp! Jacques! 
We will attempt to make contact with the lady herself, as well as many of the other spirits who walk the halls of the historic Mizpah. This hotel and town have been featured on many popular paranormal investigation shows to date. And while we're not professional, in the least. Not in the least at, at all. all. At all. Nor professional investigators no. by any means. We thought it might be a good idea to bring one on the show who can help us unpack our experiences as well as tell us some of their own. We are very, very excited to have our first guest ever on the show with us. <gasps> a professional paranormal investigator who hosts his own show on YouTube with almost 20,000 subscribers, Patrick McQuarrie of The Haunted Side. He's going to be on the show with us. Yay. We have an actual professional person who does this. Somebody who's actually going to whip us into shape. <laughs> that or we'll be like, no. I'm leaving. Like, Walk you know out. What? Goodbye. You guys are a lost cause. <laughs> I'm guys, out. You guys are a disaster. Goodbye. <laughs> a message to Patrick. Thank you for putting up with yes, us. Thank you. Just in advance. Thank you. <laughs> yes. So tune in two weeks from now when we bring you episode nine, Scarlet Ladies and Ghost Tales of the Mizpah Hotel. Until then, stay, stay spooky, spooky, friends. friends.